That's true. That's very true. Uh, When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, they knew immediately that something was wrong. They knew immediately that they had changed. And what did they know? They knew that they were naked. And so something happened to them. There's a lot of theories about what that means. Uh, But what matters is, is that they had understood that something grave had happened to them and that it exposed something about them that they had lost with their relationship with God. So what God told them is, so, I mean, they didn't know exactly. Of course, they knew what they had done. But God said to them, who told you you were naked? And something just as drastic happens to every person in this world who believes in Christ as their Savior. Uh, When we believe in Christ as our Savior, we go from sinners who are lost and hopeless and helpless to God's sons and daughters who are righteous, holy, and possessing eternal life. And so we go from, and this is what we're going to look at today, is that we go from those who, as sinful, godless, hopeless people, who receive God's incredible, irrational, crazy love to those to whom God says, now give my love to others. It has to be an incredible change. How do we go from being the recipients of God's love when we can do nothing to actually being able to give God's love to others? And so today we're going to see the transition that happens in a believer when they go from those who have received God's love to those who give God's love, while they continue, of course, to receive God's love. So let's open up in prayer. We're going to start in the Gospel of John, yeah, John 13. And let's open up in prayer, thanking God for his love, uh, for the love that motivated him to give us his son, the son who uh, gave himself willfully, for the sins of the whole world, and uh, so that we could know him and to have eternal life. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you are in your infinite self and that what you If you revealed all of yourself, there wouldn't be enough information to, to, wouldn't be enough words to contain it. But uh, what we have from you, Father, is exactly what we need. As you have revealed through the Old Testament and the New, which is exactly what needs to be known about you and about us and who need and depend upon your love, Father, we thank you for all that your word teaches us concerning you and concerning the life that you have blessed us with. We ask, Father, that through your spirit, our hearts would be enlightened by your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we each have to know why agape love is demanded of us. Now that we're believers, it's one of the commandments given to us by God. It is at the head of the fruit of the Spirit, 
It is completely described in its paradox and it's paradoxical and irrational. And we've been looking at that. That's what we've been looking at for the last few classes. Uh, The scripture doesn't hold that back. It reveals to us how uh, spontaneous, unplanned, unmotivated to everyone God's love is. Um, And so it's one thing for God to love us in this way, but it's quite another for us now to have to love others in the same way. And we have to make sure that we understand You know, whether we do this or not, what we cannot do is deceive ourselves. Now, we should do it. We're obligated to do it. And this is God's love now. It is not anything else. It is not, it's the agape that God reveals of himself in his word. It is not a human love, uh, some other kind of love. It is exactly the love that he has for the world. Uh, It is absolutely sacrificial. It gives itself away. It thinks not of itself. It is exactly the love that uh, Christ revealed on the cross. And that is the very love that we are to have to others. Uh, what, What the church has done and what all of us do is change it, water it down, lessen it. Uh, and actually mix it up with human love, or what we'll see is called eros love, and and then call it Christian love. And nothing else besides agape, as it is revealed in the scripture, which is the only place in history where it's revealed, um, and no, nothing else deserves to be called Christian love than agape love as it is in the scripture. So what I want to show you today is that first, you cannot achieve this life or this love from God. None of us have achieved it. That's, an, that's more important than we think it is to understand that. It was given to you. And so just the love was given to you. You don't make this happen. It was given to you. God loved us first. As John writes in 1 John chapter 4, God loves us first, and so we love. So it was given to you, and that's how you have it. God's, the, secondly, God's life and love cannot be separated. Why do we go from this transition? I wonder how many of us would say, hey, God, you know, would it be great is if I could stay, you know, that I could have eternal life and know that uh, at death I'm going to be with you forever in heaven Uh, and, you know, still be that sinner who is the recipient of this incredible love that you gave to me when I was an unbeliever. You know, why can't I just stay, uh, you know, in the thinking and the way of an unbeliever? Why do now you require of me to actually love others? I wonder, you know, deep in our hearts, how many of us, you know, kind of long for that. So what we find is that God's love and life cannot be separated. They're not two different things, not to God. We often describe God in his attributes, you know, um, the way I was taught it, and we all memorized it for our ordination exam, were the ten attributes of God, and we memorized those. And, you know, they're they're often memorized in a certain order, uh, and they're taught that way. And 
in that we start to think that maybe we're looking at a God who has different parts. You know, kind of like a, a, a Lego set or something, you know, where he's got different parts. Uh, but God is not like this. He depicts himself as completely unified in one. Um, so, God's life and God's love cannot be separated. That's a really important thing to understand. Because you and I have his life. And if we, we can say, well, I want your life, God, but I don't want your love. And God says that's impossible. So what's that, what is that like? Is having God's life and not having his love is like being a fish who doesn't want water. You know, or doesn't like water. Uh, it is absolutely necessary. And that's what we have to understand. By, we understand this by faith. That what I am in Christ Jesus makes me what I must do. And that's the end of it. You know, it's not that I'm, you know, if I love Father, what do I get for it? If I love Father, if I do, Father, what you want me to do, is my life going to get better? Am I going to get healthier? Am I going to get richer? Is my marriage going to work out? Are my kids going to not end up in jail? <laughs> you know, I... If I love like you have called me to love, what am I going to get? And God says, that's not my love at all. Because my love doesn't seek its own. Defined by Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, doesn't seek its own. Some people think what Paul means there is that it, it, doesn't, it, it uh, hangs out with people it doesn't know. no. <laughs> Uh, what that means is, is that you do not seek yourself. Christ did not seek himself. Uh, so there is a very real reason why we receive God's irrational and spontaneous love as sinners, as unbelievers, but as believers having eternal life that we now have to, have to, Give this love to others. I want to show you today that when we have this life, we are necessary, necessarily have to give this love to others. To have the life is to have the love. So if I have eternal life, I have the love. Right? I, I have it. I can use it. I mean, I've got to learn of it. Yeah, don't think of it as, you know, it's something like a, uh, an, an object in your pocket or something like that. It's, it's not a token. Uh, love has been given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we can learn it, and we have all, all that God has made us to be are to be those who by faith can actually use this love. And it's going to cost you everything. I want also to show you that agape, the agape love of God is the most wonderful of things in the world. It is the most wonderful thing. You know how we can prove that. The love of God is the cross. The cross is the love of God. The cross, and only the cross, has saved anybody. Not by works, but by faith. The cross, the work that Christ did on the cross, which is unfathomable to comprehend, has been the means and only means by which you have been saved. 
saved from sin, saved from death, saved from hell. So, if that's true, and it is, how can it not be the most wonderful of things? And if that love is in my life towards all others, that means the cross, the Lord, that which God is, is in my life towards all others. What will be the fruit of that? And it is beyond calculation. You know, whoever has, I don't know, whoever the richest man in the world now is, whether it's Musk or somebody else, money can't buy this. Nothing can. And yet, if you have it, you are the richest person in the world. And I would say the happiest. So we must be clear at the start that agape, that we are told to love one another, is the very same love that God has for us. So that's why we start in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love, agape, for one another. So it's the very love that Christ has for us. That's why he calls it a new command. It's not, and we'll, we'll have a class on how the love of the Old Testament is different but of the same type from the same source. But why is it different from the love of the New Testament? Why would this be called a new command? Uh, And we'll spend time on that. We don't have enough time to do both in one class. So, as a new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. Look at John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. When Christ repeats something, it's pretty important. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. right? So he's giving us the example, just in case we're wondering, well, all right, Lord, your love for us is kind of like this sympathetic, feel bad for us kind of emotional thing. Uh, Is that what it is? He's like, no. Make sure you understand what it is. The pinnacle of this love is my giving of myself for you. Now, we realize what this is. And I I was thinking about it a couple nights ago. And and it's beyond belief. And yet, I know I believe it. First and foremost, what is it like for God to become a man? He takes a, He's the Son of God forever, for eternity. He's been the Son of God. It's proven in the Scripture. But, you know, as Philippians 2 says, he empties himself of his deity. But, you know, if you think God can just give away his deity, uh, then you don't know what God is. He, he certainly doesn't give it away. Emptied means what? It means that he's... Um, Uh, given up the expression of his deity. In other words, he could use it, but he doesn't. He's taken upon himself humanity. We don't really know how that works, but it happened. He doesn't become the Son of God at birth. He has always eternally been the Son of God, as the New Testament shows us. So what is it like for God to become a man and restrict himself 
to the finite life. See, we live it every day. We think, well, you know, how bad could it be? It's probably pretty cool to be the perfect man, right, who can work miracles and knows, always knows the right thing to say and is super wise. Yeah, I mean, he's better than us all. But what we often don't think about is the restriction of infinite God to a finite man. Who does what? Suffers pain, suffers humiliation, suffers want, weeps, right? If he's weeping, he's upset. He's a man of sorrows uh, who can feel pressure, who can feel the pain of the cross and those Roman soldiers who whip the skin off of him and to hang on a cross, which is a torturous way of death. And then on top of all of that, to be separated from his father, for him to cry out, why have you forsaken me? He's not just saying that for our benefit. I don't buy that. I don't buy the fact either that he's like super happy while he's up there, as some have taught. I don't buy that. The pain is immeasurable. So, now, to us, 13, again, 15, 13. Greater love is no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. You wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I got to love that person over there like I love, like Christ loved me? And the answer is yes. That is the command. It's not my command. I didn't make it up. But I believe the scripture. Look at 15, 17. This I command you. That you love one another. Uh, Christ mentions love 18 times in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. 18 times. And here you can see he gives it as a commandment three times. The spontaneity of Christian love means that it is directly opposed to all rational computation and calculation. Prodigal son, lost sheep, vineyard owner. Uh, all of those. Actually, the, the lost coin is uh, thrown into there too. Um, agape, we're told, uh, agape gives and sacrifices. Um, where is that? I didn't put it in. Agape gives and sacrifices when, when uh, even where rational calculation would suggest that the sacrifice was useless. We see this in the parable of the sower. It's amazing how much of this we see in parables. Uh, that the sower is throwing seed on the side of the road and amongst the thorns. That seed's not going to grow. Uh, the tares grow with the wheat. God knows this. Agape gives and sacrifices. I am a firm believer in the unlimited atonement and that Christ died for the sins of all mankind. Uh, God created all mankind knowing full well that not all would believe upon him. This is something that our finite minds, again, a part of God's infiniteness that we can't understand, yet we see that he has done it. He has not calculated. This love is not a rational calculation in which we say to that person, well, you deserve this much and you deserve that much, and I'm the one making the evaluation on what people deserve. And that is not what agape is. That's human love, not agape love. 
Agape sows its seed in hope when there is no grounds for there to be any response. There's no hope, but I'm going to love you anyway. Uh, If I love this person, they're not going to respond at all. See, that's you calculating. We're not to calculate, we are to do. Go and do, the Lord said. When the sower goes forth to sow, he knows that the far greater part of the seed will be lost and yield no fruit. He takes no account of that, but sows broadcast in a carefree manner of love all over the place. God sows, God loves. So divine life is agape love. This is how God is. And you and I have received, uh, you and I have received eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That love saved us from hell. That love saved us from death. So it must be the greatest of things. The question is for us: Why? Why do we not desire it? And that's a question that each of us has to answer for ourselves. I suggest prayer and study to find that answer, because it's only a finite number of years that we have here by which we can love with this love to others in a world that has fallen. Go to Luke 15. Let's remind ourselves of the manner of agape love. Luke 15, 1. As so often in the Gospels, this is the accusation leveled against Christ. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now they would ask his disciples, Why does your master do this? And to them, this was a law-abiding. To them, they are law-abiding. And to the Lord, he is law-breaking in that, You know, the righteous should not be with the sinners. And that's how the Pharisees operated, and they thought they were law-abiding by doing it. But what Christ here is doing is bringing something brand new into the world. He's bringing heaven into the world. It's not the love of the Old Testament that he's bringing. Yes, love your neighbor. That is correct. But what Christ is bringing is love your neighbor in an absolutely purified, divine manner by God himself. This is not someone like God doing this. This is God doing this. And that's in that manner, it is new as well as, as many others. So then he tells them a parable in response to this, which uh, he can see and tell and hears that that is what they have said. So he told them this parable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, is he saying the 99 are evil? No. He's saying the 99 don't need repentance. But in heaven, because agape love is not calculating, it's not premeditated, it is acts upon all 
that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Now, there's something important here to understand. That for a shepherd to leave the 99 sheep, of which there are many who know this when this is being taught to them, many shepherds, there's a lot of shepherds in Israel, that they're in danger. To leave 99 to go get one is senseless. We think it's endearing. And yeah, it is. But to a, a real shepherd, they would say that's insane. If you leave the 99 to go get one, a pack of wolves could come in and eat the 99. Or more than one. You're exposing 99 to save one. Is the one more important than the 99? And God would say, no, no. Does God love sinners more than he loves righteous? No, he doesn't say that. That's not said. Then why is Jesus eating with the sinners? Because he's showing the love of God to what it exactly is. And though he loves the righteous, he loves the Pharisees. Heck, he loved Judas Iscariot. He loved them, but to go to them only would have shown that what they expected, that he's coming to us because we're righteous. He is not coming to you because you're righteous. He is coming to you because you're a sinner. And therefore, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to go right to the people that everybody knows is a sinner. He's not doing it because they're sinners. He's doing it because he is love. That is the key, my friends, to living God's love now in us. I don't do it because you're better or you're worse or you're this or you're that or you're whatever. No calculation. I do it because I am now in Christ and now I have his love. Love just does. Now, this is a principle of agape love, that the 99 are left because it's irrational. It's the same as the parable of the vineyard owner who's paying the people who worked one hour the same amount of money that he paid the people who worked 14 hours. Because it's not planned. It's not a legal love. <clears throat> the same principle of agape love is in the next two parables. In Luke 15, we have three parables. They are precious parables. The next one, it's very short, is the parable of the lost coin. And then the parable of the prodigal son. Probably the most famous of the parables. Now, the parable of the lost coin and the prodigal son teach the same principle. Something is lost and then it's found. However, the emphasis is different. In the parable of the lost coin, the women... The woman thoroughly searches the house for the lost coin. But unlike the sheep, the coins, the other coins are not in danger. And she's looking through her house for the lost coin, sweeping every corner, looking everywhere. The other coins, you know, she's not leaving them in danger. It's not like a robber is going to come in and grab them. So unlike the parable of the sheep or the lost sheep, the 99 sheep are in danger. The other coins are not in danger. So what's the emphasis for her is her thoroughness. That's what's emphasized about her. 
He goes out of his way to depict a woman as turning over every place to find this coin, which shows us what? God will not leave any stone unturned while he pursues the sinner. And that means everybody. God will pursue everybody. Then the parable of the prodigal son. What does that show us? It doesn't show us what kind of son to be. That's not what it's about. All the parables are about God, not about us. And they have one theme. The parable of the prodigal son, its theme is about the father. The father, as he runs to the son, is always like this. To all people, he would have been to the elder brother as he was to the younger. But that's something that's important here. In the parable of the prodigal son, we find this older brother. And he's pointed out clearly. And what does the older brother have? What does the older brother do? He holds on to legal love. And legal love, as in the parable of the vineyard workers, sees God's spontaneous, unmotivated, uncalculating love as reckless and blasphemous. Our younger son ran out, your younger son, my little brother, took all that you gave him and then he ran out and spent it all and now he's coming home with his tail between his legs because he has nothing. His reckless behavior has wasted everything and the father runs out to him and says, welcome home, let's have a party. My son was dead, now he's alive. See, legal, legal love says that, that doesn't work that way. He should be punished. And then once he does some penance, then maybe we can let him back into the house. But I, your other son, who have been with you and loyal to you, which is a good thing. You know, some people will do all kinds of things with these parables. You know, and they'll say, well, look, you shouldn't work hard and be loyal to God because then you're like the older brother. It's so stupid. What Jesus is depicting here is that legal love calculates first. And we are not to have that. We are not to do that. Our love, like God's, is to be spontaneous. Not like God's. It is God's. That is not our love. So we've spent a few classes trying to comprehend the nature of God's agape love, which is difficult. And, you know, as as you learn it, and it's in so many places in the revealed Scripture, that I hope at least that we would remember how absolutely spontaneous, unmotivated, uncalculating it is and that we are required to give it. We're going to see how giving it to people is different than giving it to God. That's another. I'm looking forward to that one. God's love is spontaneous, unmotivated, created. Creative, I mean. It gives us value. Uh, not We have no value in and of ourselves that God loving us gives us value. It initiates the relationship of God to us. We did not find God. God found us. It is the expression of God himself to his creatures who could do nothing to warrant it or merit it. Every member of the human race, therefore, has been met by God and his love in Christ Jesus at the cross. All of us are sinners in Romans 5, sinners ungodly and enemies of God. And yet, we were so loved that God sent His Son who would die for us, every one of us. Then something happens. 
Now, one might wonder and say, well, you know, God, if you told me what you wanted me to do, then maybe I wouldn't believe your gospel, <laughs> which is really stupid because, but, you know, it, you don't know this. When, when you believe the gospel, you haven't a clue, really, what God is going to call you to do. But then we saw that yesterday when we, we uh, highlighted the calling of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. And God said, I must show him everything he must suffer for my namesake. Paul didn't have a clue. But isn't it funny how willing he was to go? And that's what God is showing us. What in the world? Okay. I got my slides all out of order, I think. There it is. So the one who receives God's love through faith is then commanded to give the very same love to others. It has to be the same. Why is that? Well, you have God's life. By having God's life, we've entered into heaven. You know what heaven is? I find it fascinating that God lives in a place called heaven when he's omnipresent. Isn't he everywhere? What do you mean he's in a place called heaven? He's not finite. We say, how far away is heaven? Oh, it's super far. You'd never get there. <laughs> right? It's, it's way past. It's like past, you know, the universe. We're always pointing up, but, you know, the universe is all around us. could be down, could be left, right, behind. Who knows? 300. It's three-dimensional out there in the most enormous universe that none of us could possibly comprehend. And then somewhere after that, some hump, umpteen billion light years away, what is heaven? We're not to really care about how far it is or even what it looks. Well, I guess what it looks like would be fine. But what happens there? That is what we call holiness. Holiness. Holiness is a word that means... It's hard to pin down the word holiness. It's always it's defined as being set apart, which is true. It's a perfect definition for it. But set apart to What? And what holiness is, is all that God says is good. All that God says is right. Everything that is of love. Everything that's beautiful. Everything that's wonderful. Like that passage in Philippians 4, where Paul said to focus or concentrate on these things. All beautiful. Everything that is of love. Everything that is worthy, worthwhile. Everything that's profitable. That's heaven. And by the way, at salvation, we live there. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been raised up with Him, seated with Him in heavenly places. So when you have God's life, you've entered into that sphere. Hence, and you can't lose, you can't lose it. That's why it's, it's so terrible that people teach you have to earn this life. No, you're there, you're in it. Or that you could lose it. Because you cannot. If you can lose it, you're not obligated here. Right? To, to hold on to eternal life would mean you'd have to love like God. And it's, if you went through a period where you didn't, you would lose it. And so how are you obligated if you can actually let go of it? But if you can't lose it, are you not obligated? And all of us are. So no longer 
are we allowed to sit on the sinner's bench and only receive God's love while we continue to live out our sinful ways like we did as unbelievers? There's so many passages in the New Testament that speak of, uh, that says something like this. I know it's in Peter and others where he says, you know, you've spent enough time living like a jerk. That's not how it's stated in the scripture, but something like that. You know, the time has been enough that you have lived in wickedness, in evil, in sin. Romans 6 is the same. And that now you are no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer allowed to sit on the sinner's bench and only receive God's love while we continue in our sinful lives and ways. But we discover that we've been moved into God's kingdom, Colossians 1.13, transferred from the kingdom from darkness into the kingdom of his son. And now that we're members of that kingdom, we live in that sphere. What kind of love is there? Look, every single living creature has love. I, mean, I would even say the animal kingdom does, but um, to a certain extent. But every single human being loves. They love something, even if it's themselves. And so, for those made in God's image, which is all mankind, what kind of love is in heaven? Well, of course, it's God's. Now, we see this in a lot of places. So, we're going to try to run through a bunch of Scripture here in a few minutes. So, go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18:21 Peter came to him said to him Peter came and said to him Lord how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to 7 times now, 7 times in Peter's mind is a lot makes me wonder why Peter asked this at this particular day. Uh, you, you know, we know that the disciples had been fighting with one another about who's the greatest and all of that. You know, maybe Peter felt slighted or by some... But anyway, somebody is so-called sinning against Peter. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is 490 and in another context uh, or another gospel, this is stated, and I have to go by memory here, I'm, I, I didn't look it up, but uh, it, it emphasizes that it would be the same kind of sin. You know, the same person doing the same thing to you 490 times in a day. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of impossible, or really a lot, <laughs> And uh, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He takes Peter 7, and then he multiplies it. Right? So Peter, forgiving someone seven times, is that a good thing? Absolutely. But then God takes that good, and he multiplies it. And then he gives a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
Now, 10,000 talents, I looked this up today, it's roughly between three and four billion dollars in our today's money. Billion with a B. Okay? Uh, a talent is 6,000 denarii. So you multiply that out, roughly, it's somewhere around three and a half billion or somewhere around there. Now, what's being portrayed, and I mean, even for the richest man on earth, to pay off a $3 billion debt would bankrupt him. Uh, this is a common man. How could a common man pay such a debt? He can't. That's Jesus' point. He can't pay it. So in verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, the, his Lord commanded him to be sold. And this was a very common procedure. He'd be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and, re, and repayment been made. He would have been sold into slavery. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. But Three billion? I don't think so. But, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Jesus purposely puts the exact same sentence in both people's mouths. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. Now, here's the thing. This is the first time I've seen it this way. A hundred denarii is what the man owes him. A hundred denarii is not like five bucks. A hundred denarii is a hundred days of wages for a laborer. That's what a denarii is. A denarii is roughly... For a, for a laborer, you know, for minimum wage in the first century, whatever that was, for a day. So roughly, even if we said it's a hundred bucks, like even right now, a, a day laborer at an entry level could make roughly a hundred bucks a day, even if we take the taxes out of it, right? But that it's a hundred denarii. So this is roughly. Somewhere around $10,000. Call it even five if my numbers are off. If it's $5,000, it's substantial. It's not like this guy walks down the street and says, Hey, I gave you a quarter yesterday. All right, give it back or I'll throw you in prison. What Jesus is pointing out to us here is that someone has sinned against us and it's fairly weighty. This is therefore not someone who stepped on your foot by accident or someone who cut you off on the road or, or whatever. Someone called you a bad name or you heard some gossip. This is something that actually is quite hurtful. $10,000 is a lot of money. But how much was he forgiven? $3 billion. So, is God telling us that we should forgive, and of course love, because he has forgiven us? And that's actually a passage in Ephesians 4. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. So we would say, yeah, we should forgive because God has forgiven us. 
And that is a good motivation. It's a very good motivation. However, it's not the greatest motivation. The great motivation is, is that we live in the love that our lives have become in Christ Jesus. Why do I forgive you? See, if I say, well, all right, I'll forgive you because God has forgiven me of a lot. That's a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. But what would be better if you say, I forgive you because I am God's love. I'm not even going to sit here calculating how much God has forgiven me. In fact, I don't even know how much God has forgiven me. It's certainly a lot. I don't even know how much because I don't know how much I've sinned or I've even sinned today. But what I do have is God's love. And therefore, I forgive you. We don't calculate. We give. We forgive. And when we do this, when we understand that we're not of this world, Are we? We're citizens of heaven now. We're not of this world. We're in Christ Jesus. And so we love... You know, I have forgiveness in my heart for all people before I even have to forgive them. This is what God is doing for us here. Before I even have to love someone, I already love them before I've even met them. Because I am love in Christ Jesus. He's given it to me. So then when the time comes, and I love this principle. I really do love this principle. When the time comes, I'm overjoyed because I finally find the expression of something that's been inside of me waiting to be released. You know, it's like having this awesome skill in your mind and you're not really right now able to use it. You would love to. You know, say you're a great artist and you love to paint. And right now you can't because, I don't know, you don't have any paper. Let's say that. And you're dying. You know, you're dying to paint. I love to paint and I'm so good at it. It gives me such great joy. I just don't have any paper or any equipment. And then someone comes along and says, Oh, hey, I see you don't have any brushes or paint or paper here. And you just can't wait to get at it. That's what God's getting at here. Transforming our hearts into His image. And then, when the time comes, we find great joy in expressing what divine good has been living in us to do for you know however long it's been there. It's a great point of this. So, uh, things get reported to the slave owner here. So, in verse 31, So, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So some will say, well, wait a minute. If I don't forgive, God's going to torture me? It's a parable. Christ is telling a story. right? To make the story go, you have to put a lot of parts in. So we're looking for the main thought. But here, yes, is there consequences? 
So in verse 34 again, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, now Christ goes, leaves the parable, now is first person. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you, each of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. Do what? Discipline. How, how much, in what way? That's not for us to know. But you see, Jesus here points out the fact that, yeah, I have called you to this, and if you don't do it, there are consequences to it. Why are there consequences to it? God gets super mad at us. Well, think about it, guys. If there wasn't consequences, would we do it? You know, maybe there's some of us who would. Bravo to them. If you're one of them, bravo to you. But all of us have experienced a life or parts of our lives where because we refused to forgive, we were miserable. Because we refused to love, we reaped what we sowed. And it was painful to us. And that's exactly what he's saying here. I'm not going to let you go another way. Because you're my children. I've given you my life. I'm not going to let you go another way. And we should be so grateful for this. Because here's, you know, if, if something else besides holiness was a place of blessing, then there's, there's options to life, isn't there? If holiness is the only place of blessing, then there's no options to life. It's holiness or nothing. Or, I should say, holiness or consequences. Bad consequences. But if there's other places, you know, besides God's holiness, there's this, that, and the other, which I can live in, and I'll be great. Yeah, and and it's the reason why, um, like, say, right now, uh, the transgender whole thing is like a whole thing, right? It's a big whole thing. And... You know, there have been people, there have been, let's go with men, there have been men dressing up as women uh, since antiquity. Uh, It was prevalent in Greece, Roman Empire, I'm sure in Egypt too, where homosexuality and cross-dressing and all of that, it's always been around. It's not a new thing, right? It's, It's ungodly and perverse, but it's not been a new thing. If people have done it, you know, whatever. Uh, but here's the point, you know, why is it that not only them, but of all, they demand that society tell them that it's okay, that everybody in society say, no, this is right, this is good, bravo. Why is that? Because they know deep in their hearts that it's wrong. And they're trying. So it, it's in a, that example or, or wealth trying to get wealth, uh, some kind of sinful pleasure, uh, some kind of addiction, some kind of illicit sexuality. We say these are places of blessing and everyone who has thrown their lives into them have found out that there's the consequences are dire and painful. And hence they look to others and say, please tell me I'm right. And that the consequences of this are your fault. They're not mine. 
and on and on it goes. And why is this? Because there's only one place where there is blessing, and this is why God disciplines us. And it's not because he's all mad at people who have gone against him. If that were the case, he wouldn't have made any of us. The sower goes out to sow. He's not going to sow seed along the road knowing it's not going to grow. God wants to bless us. And so hence, the Lord is moved with anger and turns the man over to the torturers because God wants us to be blessed. And look, the blessings of eternal life, you can't say, all right, I want the blessings of eternal life, but I don't want agape love. Then you don't want the life. I want the blessings of eternal life, but I don't want the holiness, i.e. Corinthians, which they gave up on agape love too (laughs) because they were fighting and and devouring one another and jealous of one another. There's no agape in Corinth. Hardly. Yet Paul called them saints. Paul called them believers. He never doubted that they were believers. And yet they wanted eternal life without the things that are eternal life. And this is the argument that the Lord, that Paul, as we'll see, on and on they're going to make with us. That look, you can't have the life without the things that make up the life. That's not the life. All right, one more. Uh, right here in Matthew, Matthew uh, 10, 5. Go back to chapter 10. When we enter into a relationship and fellowship with God, we're obligated to d- adopt his distinctive ethics. I say ethic, but I do mean multiple things. Um, and what we're going to see is Paul's going to say, look, you love, you love with agape. It sums up the whole law. That's because everything that you would be told to do in the law towards others, if you had agape love, you would do them. You wouldn't need a law to tell you. Would I need a law for me to tell me that I shouldn't steal from you if I love you? Uh, that's kind of silly. I don't need that law. I mean, I follow it, but I don't need to. I don't need the law. I don't actually need to be told. All right, look at Matthew 10.5. Uh, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. So right there in the beginning of chapter 10, we have Jesus calling out. Uh, not that Matthew isn't always chronological. So just, you know, it, 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 Matthew will mix and match certain days and certain different days and different things. But Matthew 5, 10.5 says, These 12, the 12 that were called apostles, Jesus sent out, which is what apostle means, the one you send out, after instructing them. And he tells them this, do not go the way of the Gentiles and do not enter this, any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Now, because the context is the power of miracles that you and I can't do, we might miss the context, or miss the this freely give, uh, sorry, freely receive, freely give. But isn't it a miracle to give someone agape love? It's actually more of a miracle than this. 
why can the disciples go out? You know, these are, they're brand new to the whole thing. Why can they go out to these towns in Israel and heal the sick and cast out demons? When they return, they're super overjoyed at the fact that they, they actually did it. They, they can't, they're almost jumping out of their own skins because of what the power that they were able to do. Jesus gave them the power to do miracles. Far greater miracle and far more impact in another person's life. You, you could heal somebody of their sickness and you couldn't, and it might not heal their soul. You could heal somebody of their sickness and they still end up in the lake of fire. The ability to give people love is to show them the cross. Because love is the cross. To give people love is to show them God. For someone like me to do that, which again, it's not because I'm a super nice guy or I'm a super great guy or I worked really hard at this. It's nothing to do with that at all. It's because God gave it to me through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. I possess it and now I give it to others because I've learned to trust. I've learned by faith to trust God for everything. I've learned by faith. I put my faith in Him that this is my life. And since this is my life, I give this love. And that is a miracle. It's a miracle that I can do it. And it's a miracle when you give it. And that person, not everybody's going to respond to it. So I went out to sow. Not everybody's going to respond to it. But some are. Some are. And then when you see that fruit, it's just more joy. And there's nothing better. Nothing better. But here's what we do. Here's what we do. We say, well, if I sacrifice and give to that person, they're not going to respond. I just know it. So I'm not going to give to them. And what I'm going to do is pick and choose people to love on the basis of a calculation on who's going to respond and who isn't. And I'll tell you honestly, you don't have the love at all. If you're a believer, you have it. But that's not it. As soon as you start calculating, tell yourself, this isn't God's love. You can do it. No one's, God's not going to stop you. But tell yourself, that is not God's love. Go to God in prayer in that very moment, even if it's for a minute, and say, this is not your love, is it? Can you show me, show me what to do? Show me how to change my mind. Because we have eternal life, we are obligated to this. It is required, and its prototype, the prototype is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for you and your love in our Lord. Thank you that you and you alone, Father, have blessed us with love, by your love. And we thank you, Father. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts from which we forgive and love others. We know that we're, we're scared of it at times and we hesitate and we calculate. Help us, Father, through your Spirit to see how to overcome 
those obstacles and hindrances that we may love like you love. We ask in Christ's name, amen.